chapter 6 today. Finished off chapter 5 last week. And if you remember, this was a, a time Jesus had gone over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, came back, and when he came back, there was this huge crowd that just instantly just gathered around him. So much so that he could barely even move through the crowd. The, the word that's used is that he was thronged by the multitudes, and that's being pressed in on all sides. And so as he's got this huge group around him, uh, the leader or a leader of the synagogue there, Jairus, comes and tells him, my daughter is at the point of death. And, and again, that's very specific. It doesn't just mean she's ill or she's sick. It means she is so close to dying that minutes count. Every second counts. And so when he shows up and he tells Jesus this, and Jesus says, yeah, let's go. Again, he's pressing through this crowd and trying to get Jesus back to his house where his daughter is. And uh, then this woman sneaks in, in the crowd, touches Jesus' cloak, and is, is healed. She's had this ongoing issue of blood. And in the Hebrew culture, that made her completely unclean. For 12 years, she hasn't been allowed to touch anybody or her kids, if she had kids, or her husband. And she's been in isolation, basically, for 12 years. And, and she's trying to sneak in, touch Jesus, get healed, and get out. It's a hit-and-run healing, and she's on her way. And Jesus stops everything and goes, who touched me? And, of course, he knew who touched him. But he wanted to put the spotlight on her so that he could kind of just bring out her faith. But also, I think it was to let her know, you're not stealing anything. This is a blessing. This is grace poured out on you. And, and so that she wouldn't feel like she had taken something. But it's an interesting contrast. So that was, you know, in chapter 5. And then Jesus goes, uh, goes on to uh, heal Jairus' daughter, bring her back from the dead. Um, but again, we go from this big crowd following Jesus, and we can be sure that they followed him all the way to Jairus' house. And chapter 6, when there should be a crowd, and there's not. And the stories that we're going to look at here in the first half of chapter 5, and that's all we're going to do today is the first, or chapter 6, first half of it. They seem just kind of like random and, and unrelated, but I believe that there is a common thread that runs through it, and I think it, it's going to give us great application as we get through these three stories um, or three examples. Um, and so let's pray, and we will get into chapter 6. God, we thank you just for the power that's in your word. And again, we pray that you would have your way in us today. And as we study your word, it wouldn't just be for uh, gathering knowledge, but Lord, that we'd be changed, that you would apply these things to us, show us how to live them out. We'd be challenged by you today, Holy Spirit. And again, we, we just give you this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So verse 1, chapter 6. As then he went out from there and came to his own, own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which, he is, get, which is given to him? And such mighty works are performed by him by his hands. Is this not the carpenter? The son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, are not his sisters here with us? And so they were offended. But Jesus said to them, The prophet 
is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. And now he could do no mighty work there except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. Now again, Jesus has been just crowded by people everywhere he goes. He goes back to his hometown of Nazareth. And, uh, and really it's the area around Nazareth as well. Um, and, and at first it sounds like people are amazed, right? Jesus shows up, he teaches in the synagogue, and, and at first it seems like, man, these, they're, they're, they love it, right? Verse 2, it says they were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things, right? So we could read that and think that they're like, wow, this is great, this is amazing, look at what Jesus is doing. Um, but that's completely the wrong tone. It's not, they're not saying that at all. And again, keep in mind, Nazareth, Nazareth was a small place. It wasn't, didn't have millions of people. Everybody knew everybody. And uh, like a lot of the villages, you know, Bethlehem and all those were just small little places. So everybody knew what was going on. Everybody knew each other's kids. And that's the case here. These people saw Jesus grow up. And again, I just, you know, I, there are those things that I can't wait to get to heaven and going, okay, I, I want to watch the replay of those things. What was Jesus like when he was a little kid? You know, we don't know. We have no record of it other than when he was 12. But I mean, however he was, certainly his family and the people in that town and, and around him saw him grow up. Uh, interestingly enough, his brothers or half brothers and sisters are talked about. His brothers are mentioned by name. And uh, it's important that we understand that besides Mary, none of his other, the rest of his family believed in him. That, that they were opposed to who Jesus was. They didn't, didn't believe that he was the Messiah, didn't believe he was the Son of God, until later on. It wasn't until after he rose from the dead that we see James come in, and, and James becomes a huge part of the church uh, in the book of Acts, or after in that time. And, uh, and so I think that may have been part of it, that people went, well, his brothers don't believe this guy's the Messiah, right? They were kind of playing off what they already knew. But either way, they, they knew who Jesus was. They knew how he had grown up. And verse 3 says, and so they were offended at him. That's the tone. In other words, that when Jesus teaches, instead of them going, wow, we're amazed, this is incredible, what they're really saying is, who is this guy to teach us? How dare he come in here? We know him. We know his family. He's no one special. And they dismissed him. Huge. And for me, what I think about is imagine the needs in Nazareth and in the area around there. Just like everywhere else. There were sick, there were lame, there were crippled, there were blind, there were people with leprosy. Tons of needs, right? It's not, they couldn't go to the doctor, they were just like everywhere else. And I have no doubt that they were praying, Lord, provide, help, heal. And right there in their street, in their synagogue is God Almighty, and they reject him. <laughs> I can't even imagine on Judgment Day that they will stand there and go, whoops, <laughs> we, we just saw you with the carpenter. We didn't think you were anybody special. Um, but you know what? At the same time, we've all met those people, and I think at times we've been those people. That we are, are the ones that are, uh, 
or we've known people, their lives are broken, stressed, depressed, got just trial after trial in their life, and they're begging, I just need help. If someone could only help me. And then the answer comes. What you need is Jesus. Man, the Lord loves you. He's got a good plan for you. Let him have all your burdens. Let him have all your troubles and trials. He wants to heal you. Oh, no, I don't want that help. I've heard about Jesus. I went to church once, and someone was rude to me there. Which, again, that's, I, I have no doubt that happens all the time, right? Not in this church. Other churches, for sure. <laughs> but, again, imagine the day of judgment. Why didn't you believe in my son? Because I went to church once, and someone was rude to me. <laughs> Sounds so hollow, right? Or they say, well, I knew a Christian, and they were mean, or they did something bad. Yeah, no doubt. People are horrible. That's not a shock. That's why Jesus had to come, is for sinners, to save that which was lost. And like the people in Nazareth, people think they know who they're talking about when they talk about Jesus. Oh, I don't want that, Jesus. It's too restrictive. He's going to change my life. He's going to make me give things up. But they don't know him at all. Just like in Nazareth. Oh, he's the carpenter. Oh, he's uh, James's brother or Mary's son. You know, just enough to make you dangerous. Just enough to dismiss the one thing you need. All right? And Jesus really answers their whole attitude in verse 4 where he says, where it says, But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. And again, we can look at this and go, man, yeah, those people in Nazareth, bummer. They're, you know, how could they? Such bad people or whatever. But you know what? We all make the same mistake. Different degree, a little different packaging, but it's the exact same mistake. Where we're praying, God, I need you to teach me. Jesus, I want you to speak to me. I want you to give me instruction. Show me your will. And then how often does his word or instruction come to us from someone else in our family. And we don't want to hear it from them. Right? Whether that's a spouse or one of our kids or it could be a, a, our employer. It's, it's someone like, oh, no, no, no. I, I, I can't receive it from them. Well, you, you've asked for instruction. You're getting it, but you're going to turn it away because you don't like the messenger. I remember, <laughs> for me particularly at time, um, if you guys have met our son, Michael, he's amazing. We're just so proud of him. We just love him to death. But he was a little difficult when he was younger. A bit, bit of a handful, right? And he uh, had gotten in trouble. And I had just talked that Sunday about how Jesus leads us as a shepherd, right? He doesn't drive us. He leads us. And that was kind of my main point. I just beat it to death on a Sunday. And Michael happened to be in there that, that Sunday. And then later on in the week, he got in trouble. And I grabbed him, and I was, like, pushing him ahead of me <laughs> because he, he just wasn't paying attention. I'm like, you stay ahead of me and go, go ahead of me. He's like, Dad, the Lord is a shepherd, and he would never drive me. He would lead me. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> That's kind of how that one went. (laughs) 
But later on, I thought about it, went, yeah, probably. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but we do that, right? I mean, somebody speaks a word, and it doesn't matter how true it is, if we don't want to hear it from that messenger, it's really easy for us to dismiss it. And, and we can end up missing the whole thing. And it's really our own pride, it's our own arrogance, whatever, you know. And that, again, is the case here with those in Nazareth. They're missing out on so much that was being offered to them. And in verse 5, it says, Now he could do no mighty work there. Understand, it's not that his power was limited. I've heard that taught. Well, because their faith was so low, Jesus couldn't do anything. That is not it at all. Jesus is not limited by them a bit. What it means is nobody came to him. There was no crowd. No one brought the sick. No one brought the blind. They just dismissed him altogether. And even when it says that he healed a few that were sick, I almost picture Jesus just like going up to somebody like collapsed in the street and going, you know, just touching them. They didn't ask. He just chose to heal them for whatever reason. But that's the idea here is that nobody came to him. And therefore, he's not going to force blessing upon someone's life. You know, again, I've had this conversation with people that are like, no, I don't want Jesus. You know, if he's, all, if he's everything you're talking about, then why doesn't he just do it? Because he's not going to force himself on you. He's a gentleman. He, he's made himself known to you by the people in your life, by his word, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if that's not enough, then that's as far as he's going to go until you, you change your mind. Right? So in this case, they would not come to him. They didn't, and so they didn't receive any of the things that he had for them. And again, I can't help but think that they were still praying, God, please do something. Please help. Not realizing that they had rejected the opportunity that was given to them. All right. Verse 7 goes on. It says, And he called the twelve to himself. And he began to send them out two by two. And he gave power, gave them power over unclean spirits and commanded them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to, uh, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. Also, he said to them, whatever place you enter a house, stay there until you depart from that place. And whoever will not receive you nor hear you, when you depart from there, shake the, off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. And assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in that day, in the day of judgment, than for that city. And so they went out and preached that the people should repent. And they cast out demons and anointed many with oil who were sick and healed them. We see the disciples here taking their step out into ministry. And I think it's important, again, we can just look at that, but I want to kind of keep it in context of the, the role of the disciples. Not only how Jesus called them or why he called them initially, but how he sends them out. Because I think there's an important progression here. Um, first of all, I think uh, we need to remember that in Matthew, when Matthew gives this account, it's right before this. That Jesus says, you know, look out into the fields, that they're ripe for harvest. And then he says, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send workers. And again, the disciples are like, yeah, right on, Lord, let's pray. 
we're going to pray that he sends those workers out there, right? And, and to me, it's, it's such a cool way that the Lord does this. Um, it kind of feels a little bit like a trick if you've fallen for this trick. <laughs> but I think it's just it's how he does it, right? So he puts something on your heart. Hey, pray for that. And you're like, yeah, I'm going to pray for that. And then it just kind of keeps building in your heart. And you're like, man, I'm going to pray for that more. I'm going to tell other people to pray for that. And then you, you're like, Lord, send people to do that work, you know? And, and, and you get more excited about it. And then all of a sudden you kind of go, oh, no, I'm those people. I'm the one that's supposed to go do that work, right? And the Holy Spirit goes, surprise, it's you, right? You're like, oh, no, you got me, you know. But it, it's cool because it, he just plants that seed. Look out in the fields. They're ripe for harvest. Pray that the Lord will send someone. Yeah. And so Jesus is doing that same thing with the disciples, right? He's told them to pray, told them to look, and, and now he's like, and guess what? I'm sending you. And now he sends them out. <clears throat> and again, there's this great progression here of uh, that, first of all, these are just common guys. Not one priest, not one teacher or rabbi among them. You've got these middle-class fishermen, an outcast tax collector, and a couple religious zealots, or, or terrorists, really, of their day. And, and this is who he's got, right? And, and so now he's like, look, now I'm sending you out in the world, and I want you to preach the gospel, and I want you to have, I'm giving you power and authority over supernatural beings like demons and to, to, to speak healing into people's lives. But again, they were just common people. And sometimes we can put the, the disciples up on this pedestal like, oh, they were some, somehow superhuman. They were chosen because they were so deep. I mean, we understand as we read through the Gospels that they were people just like us, but it's good to remember that they were normal people. And I think it's also important that even here as he sends them out in verse 7, it says, and he called the 12 to himself. This is more than, hey, huddle up, boys, I got a plan. He's reminding them, I called you. The reason you're here is because I chose you. Because they had to feel, I mean, once they knew what Jesus was sending them out to do, they had to feel pretty unqualified, right? I know all of us would. They'd be like, uh, I think you chose the wrong people, right? I mean, pretty, pretty normal people, but the Lord is reminding them, I called you. You're the one that I wanted. And, and how, why he called them is important. So first of all, he called them to be his disciples, um, which just simply means to be disciplined. But the idea is that being disciplined under the teaching of a rabbi, that he wants them to know who he is, what he's about, to follow his life, to be disciplined according to the things that he says is, are important. And then after that, and this is what we see here, he's, he's calling them to be apostles, which means the sent ones. And so he's sending them out in his name. But that, that's an important progression. Sometimes people get saved, and right away they're like, I'm going to do something. I'm going to be involved. I'm going to do all these things. No, first we need to be disciples, and then we can do things. But anytime the doing things, no matter what they are, if that starts to overshadow being a disciple, it's out of line, Right? We can make a project or a plan or a church or whatever so important that it's suddenly it's overshadowing the actual time that just it's just us and the Lord. 
where we're being disciplined in the ways of Jesus Christ by the power of his Holy Spirit, right? Um, and so now the guys are going out, and, and he sends them out two by two. Also, very important, that we understand that we are called to serve others with others. It, my personality, I tend to be very much of a lone wolf. <laughs> I, I tend to be a little bit uh, uh, just very independent in the way I do things. And so that's always been a stretch for me to, to get more people involved. And, I, and it's, it's great, but it's a lesson I'm always learning again and again. It's probably part of my introverted personality that I'm just like, it's just easier if I do it, right? <laughs> but it's important. We know that Jesus sent out the 12 two by two for, uh, I think, a lot of reasons. We're not going to get into all of them, but I think, um, first of all, it's just good that we know that, that we're called to serve with one another. And it doesn't always mean we get along. I've served with people in ministry, and we just butted heads the whole time. But interestingly enough, that those things that were done, the Lord just causes them to succeed. That that person saw things I didn't, and I saw things they didn't, and even though we didn't seem to agree, and we're always kind of back and forth, what the Lord was doing was amazing. And so it isn't that we have to get along or just be in perfect sync with everybody. That's just not always possible because of who we are. The great thing is the Holy Spirit knows how to get us in line to a degree to do what's important, right? And to give each other enough grace to work together. I think there's also a whole side of accountability to it, right? That if I step out of line, then the, my partner in ministry is able to go, you're going the wrong way there. You know, when we were in Lebanon, we had a great time and it was successful, but there was a few things that happened towards the end of the trip um, as far as Hezbollah getting involved and kind of shutting down what we were doing, I got really frustrated. And my buddy Dan just kind of like pulls me to the side and he's like, we're here for people, not projects. So the project shut down, fine. Let's go find people. And it's like, dude, right on. It's exactly right. But without that other person, I just would have spun out, right? So we need to have one another in ministry. And, and I, again, I just think it's, a, it's an important part uh, that as we go out, we are not trying to be a lone wolf. Because the other side of it that I've found is that the lone wolf in ministry, before long, just becomes a wolf. And they're starting to do more damage than good. Because nobody understands them. Because nobody gets it like they get it. And, and they just start doing damage. You've got to be in a team. Now, for these guys, uh, again, he, he sends them out. He gives them power. That's another important part. So he's not just saying, hey, guys, go out and figure it out. Throws them into the deep end of the pool and says, have fun. Tell me how that works for you. But he says, I'm empowering you. I'm sending you out. So they couldn't do any of this stuff if Jesus had not empowered them to do it. Again, good for us to remember that whenever a ministry or a part of ministry comes up, or even if we're just sharing the gospel with somebody, we need to just know that it's him empowering us to do it. If I'm trying to do it in my intellect, my ability, my strength, it's going to fall short every time. I just don't have it, right? None of us do. But when we remember, Lord, this is what you want. This is your calling on my life. This is your empowerment. I'm just going to be faithful and, and go through the doors that you put before me. 
He's going to be the one to have the power. And again, these guys are facing some heavy stuff, stuff that they've seen Jesus do, but they haven't done themselves. Casting out demons, bringing healing to somebody's lives, even just preaching the gospel. You know, it's, it's, I think we lose track of how major these things are. You know, and I, for me, I mean, I love getting to teach the Bible, and it's always one of those things. In fact, I had somebody just a few weeks ago say, do you ever get nervous when you teach? I'm like, yeah, every single week I get nervous. But I'm kind of used to it. It's like it's part of, the, part of the schedule, right? It's like, oh, you know, 8 o'clock, I start freaking out. And by 9 o'clock, it's too late, and I just got to go with whatever I got. And, and 10 o'clock, I'm in just like terminal velocity. And so it's like, okay, let's see what happens. But somebody that doesn't teach that often, you're like, hey, could you teach for me? Just a five-minute devotion. And they're like, oh, no, right? It's a lot of pressure. So the guys are doing that. And Jesus saying, oh, by the way, cast out demons as long as you're out there and, and heal people. And they're like, okay. You know? <laughs> but it's, it's because his power is on them. Again, these are probably one of the most exciting things for me in ministry, whether it's teaching, whether it's praying for people or getting to see prayers answered, is that we as common people are suddenly connected to the miraculous. Things that, again, we don't have the power to do. We can't effectively teach a Bible study. We can't effectively, you know, pray for somebody because we think good thoughts. But because we know it's the power of Jesus Christ and Him doing the work, we get connected to that. And so suddenly common people like us are, are getting to be empowered and see the amazing and the supernatural. And it's, it's the front seat of the roller coaster. It is terrifying and beautiful all at the same time. And I, I wouldn't want to live any other way. It's one of those things I want more and more of in my life. Now, another important thing that Jesus says here, and I think it, it almost seems a little surprising. I wouldn't say contrary, but seems like a little out of left field surprising. Um, well, two things, I guess. So first of all, he tells them uh, in verse 8, he can, commands them to take nothing for the journey except the staff. And then he's real clear, right? Don't take money. Don't put extra money in your belt. Don't wear two tunics, which is the way that they would carry extra clothes. You put one on, you put another one over that, and you're good to go. Nope, don't do that. And the reason was is he wanted them to see God's provision. But I think it's important we know that not every mission trip or every ministry beginning necessarily looks like this, right? And I've, I've talked to people that are like, man, every time we do this, we just like sell all of our stuff and we go out there with nothing. <laughs> I'm like, okay, and, but this is what they're pointing to, that that's the step of faith. And I'm like, well, okay, I think God will meet you there if, if that's where you're at, but it's not how we see it in the book of Acts, you know, they didn't dump everything they went out every time they went out there. Sometimes they did, sometimes they didn't. So I think we have to be listening to the Holy Spirit. In this case, it was because he wanted them to see God's provision. And the reason I think that's important, especially as we, we look at stuff, we're like, okay, we feel like God's calling us to maybe do another ministry, start a, another ministry. Sometimes we go to the other extreme, right? So there's the one extreme that's like, that's it, we're selling everything, and we're going to go into the field with nothing. The other side, and I think this is more common, more of our human nature is, I want to have the entire thing so planned out, there will be no surprises. I want every T crossed, every I dotted, and when that happens, then I'll go. 
That doesn't work either because you'll never go, ever. There will always be one more thing or ten more things that you need to figure out first. And so I think there is that balance, right? We're called to be good stewards. We're called to be wise to consider the cost of building a tower. So there is that place to go, okay, what is the cost of this? My time, my money, effectiveness, hopefully, those kinds of things. But at some point with all of it, you just got to jump and see God's provision. There's a point where you're like, I don't have most of this figured out. <laughs> Let's go, right? And again, it's the front seat of the, ro the roller coaster. It is terrifying and beautiful all at the same time. But there's that point. And I think setting this up as far as like the foundation for the disciples to go, look, God's going to provide for you. He's going to take care of you. Again, that doesn't give us excuse to be uh, poor stewards or to, you know, dismiss the, the wisdom or the things that he's re revealed to us, but to trust. Lord, you've called me to do this. I believe you're going to provide for it as we go. And then in verse 10, again, this seems a little bit odd where he says, uh, also he said to them, in whatever place you enter a house, stay there until you depart from that place. Now, this first part is just, it's good manners, right? So you go into a city or into a town, and, and it's very common to go, hey, I'm looking for a place to stay. Is there a house, or do you have room in your house? And someone was like, yeah, I've got room. And, and they bring you there. Don't try and upgrade later. So you're spending a week there, and you've got a, you know, a little shack that you're staying in, and someone with a big house is like, hey, why don't you come stay with me? We've got tons of room. And you're like, later, right? Jesus is saying, don't do that. That if they've opened their house to you, then honor them and stay in that place. In Matthew, where, where Jesus says this, he says, let your peace rest upon that house. And it's a lot more than just be nice. It's saying, look, let your peace, let your joy be on those people. Be a blessing to them. Don't go there and be a taker. Don't demand things. Be somebody that's a blessing. Do the dishes. You know, <laughs> take care of the people who are taking care of you. Now, when you go to a town and they won't hear you, he says in verse 11, when you depart from there, shake the dust, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And I guess that's the real part that just seems so contrary, right? That, that you're going out there, you're preaching the gospel, you're giving out the love of Jesus, and when it sounds like, you know what, we're not interested, beat it. Just shake the dust off your feet. And to me, it kind of comes across, sometimes it sounds like a little arrogant, sounds a little rude, but understand what Jesus is saying is, of course, dead on. It isn't that we're saying, look, we're so important and you didn't even know how important I was. I'm shaking the dust off of my feet. It's really saying, look, I'm nobody. But the king who sent me and his message of salvation is everything. And if you won't hear it, then the dust from your city is not worthy to be on my feet because I'm his messenger. And again, that's not arrogant. I think it's giving him great worth. It's saying, look, my message that I've been given is so important. I'm not going to waste time with somebody that doesn't want to hear it. And I, I feel that way. Again, I think we're given a great honor to plant seed, right? That when we share the gospel, we just know... Seeds are being planted. But when that person's like, I don't want to hear it, or they just want to argue or whatever, I'm done. 
I got a phone call a couple weeks ago from this guy, and man, all he wanted to do was argue. And finally, I'm like, bud, I'm, I'm sorry. I got better things to do. And he's like, oh, you're a coward. You don't want to discuss these things. And I'm like, well, not with you, I don't. Boom. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> because there, he wasn't interested, right? If somebody wants to talk about a struggle they're having or a part of the scripture that they don't understand or something that Jesus said that they just is, it bothers them, I'll spend all day with that person. Somebody wants to argue, I don't have two minutes for them. Because there's somebody just down the road who's literally dying to hear that truth. And I think it's a, it's a trap of the enemy that, that we start pursuing people that don't want to hear. Right? And that's what this comes down to. Don't hang out in a city where they don't want to hear it. Move on, because the next one does want to hear it. Don't waste your time with people who are going to dismiss you. And, uh, and I think that's good for us. I think it's good for us to remember, look, yeah, I want the best for them. I hope they repent. I hope they'll hear it. But if they aren't willing to, we need to move on. Find the person that is wanting to hear it. They're probably not far away. All right, verse 14. And this is kind of a large chunk that we're not going to spend a lot of time on because we covered it pretty well in Matthew, but we'll, we'll go through it. It says, Now King Herod heard of him, meaning Jesus, for his name had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Others said, it is Elijah. And others said, it is the prophet, or one like the prophets. But when Herod heard, he said, this is John, whom I beheaded. And he was raised from the dead, for Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John, and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. Because John had said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him. But she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was just and holy, a just and holy man. And he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. When an opportunity, excuse me, when an opportune day came, when Herod, on his birthday, gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers, and the chief men of Galilee, when Herodias' daughter herself came and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give, at, give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorrowful, yet because of his oath and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent the executioner, commanded that his head be brought and he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. Again, we covered this uh, 
pretty thoroughly in Matthew, but there are a few points that I think are important to bring out. Uh, Herod the Tetrarch is, all, is Herod Antipas, and uh, Rome had allowed them, the Herods, Herod is like a, a family title, and Rome had allowed them to have a certain amount of power as long as they could keep the peace. They kind of set themselves up as middlemen between Rome and Israel. Uh, they had this really weird obsession with Israel, like they wanted to be Jewish, but they weren't Jewish, and uh, and the whole bunch was just a crazy, crazy bunch of people. They were horrible. Um, but again, they were allowed to have some power. And as messed up as they were, and we get a little bit of that for sure here in this story, but part of it that's just kind of touched on is that Herod had decided that he wanted his brother's wife. And so he just took her, and she was okay with that. And they told everyone, oh, yeah, we're married now. And everybody knew they weren't, but they just went, okay, because the guy was crazy and didn't want to die, so they would just nod their heads, uh, except for John the Baptist. John the Baptist never pulled any punches, and he's like, you are in the wrong. What you're doing is unlawful, ungodly. And again, he could say that to Herod because Herod tried to act like he was Jewish, right? You, you couldn't say it to somebody that was just a full-on Roman. It wouldn't mean anything to them. But to Herod, he, he was able to say, look, you are out of line. You are doing the wrong thing. It is unlawful. Um, and it's Herodias. That's Philip's. That's his brother. Okay. It's his brother's wife, who I'm pretty sure was also his cousin. Tells you how messed up again they were. She's the one that's really mad. It, she's the one that's upset that she didn't want to be corrected. She didn't want to be told she was wrong. So much so, she wants John the Baptist dead. And her opportunity comes on Herod's birthday. Uh, she has her daughter dance. And again, Matthew shows that this was all laid out. This was all planned beforehand. That she and her daughter had this whole scheme. That she knew how Herod was going to respond. And, and it sounds like his response to her dance is like this huge thing. But it was actually fairly common. Where he says, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. Whatever you want. But it was like this understood thing. So he'd make this grand gesture to impress his guests. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. And it was expected that she would ask for something small. So he looked great being generous. She looked great being humble, right? But she doesn't do that. She doesn't play that game. Instead, she's like, kill John the Baptist. Darn. And it says that, verse 26, that he was exceedingly sorry. And this, in a weird way, cracks me up again, shows how twisted they were. He's exceedingly sorry, yet, because of his oaths and those who sat with him. Guy's got to keep a promise, right? He made an oath to her, he can't back out now. But he's going to do this horrible thing, murdering an innocent man because he shot his mouth off at dinner. because he wants to impress those who sat with him, doing the wrong thing for the fear of people. Again, it's an easier trap to get in, maybe not to this extreme, but we can find ourselves there. Oh, well, I said I would. Gosh, I can't back out of it now. Sure you can. You go, nope, I misspoke. I was wrong, sorry. But instead, he sends and has John put to death. I think this is one of the things that... Uh, that sin does in our life. Our flesh and the devil 
try and trap us in a corner and make us feel like you've got to make this choice right now. This is an immediate thing. Because her demand wasn't next week have John the Baptist put to death. It's right now, do it. And the enemy still works the same way. Backs us into a corner. It's urgent. It's got to happen now. Make your decision. And so often we make the wrong one when we're in that place. Now, looking at all of these, again, they seem like just kind of disjointed or random stories. But what I see in here is kind of the, uh, the common thread is that there is instruction being given. There's correction being given. And there's different responses, right? And I think it's important as to understand how this is happening and who's giving this instruction. Because I know that sometimes when we share with somebody, we share the gospel, or we try and encourage somebody, even if it's just to come to church, whatever it might be, and we don't get a good response. Maybe they're offended or they're angry. It's easy to walk away and go, man, what did I do wrong? How could I have worded that better? How could I have somehow not had any conflict or made them feel you know, like I was pushing? Whatever it is, we second guess what we do. Yet in these cases, there's nothing wrong. John, the Baptist, was not wrong in what he said. He gave a word of correction that was godly and was true, and he was killed for it. But he was still right. So the hearer was the one that had the problem, but not John. When Jesus sends out the disciples, you're going to have whole cities that won't hear you. And it isn't about you wording it better. It isn't about you presenting it in a more, you know, real way for them. They just won't hear you. Again, these guys are empowered by Jesus, called by Jesus. They're not doing anything wrong. There's just some that won't hear. Jesus himself in his hometown would not be heard. And it certainly wasn't because he didn't word things well. It wasn't because he didn't present himself in a kind enough way. It's because they simply would not hear. Now, again, I think there's a balance for us, right? I think it is important that when a, something doesn't go well, we take time to debrief with the Holy Spirit, right? We shared the gospel with somebody. They got angry. It was a big blow up. And afterwards we go, Lord, what do I need to own in that? What did I say wrong? Were there things that I was out of line in, right? We want to know those things so we can mature and so we can grow. But it, if he doesn't reveal something specific, then I think we just drive on. And, and we don't let those hurts and we don't let those things weigh us down or cause us to second guess our calling or his desire to use us in this lost world, right? That when we know we belong to him, that he has sent all of us out, just like the disciples. And that the message we bring is the good news. Man, how could we do anything else but share it, right? Again, if they didn't hear Jesus, a lot of times they're not going to hear us. But it doesn't change the fact we still bring the message. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your patience with us that you continue to cause us to grow and grow closer to you. And Lord, we want to be good representatives of your kids. 
We want people to know that they are loved, welcomed, that they feel comfortable in church or around us because of who you are. Lord, we pray that you give us boldness to share our faith and to share your love and just who you are with the people around us. God, give us your words. Give us those opportunities. Use us however you want this next week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.